Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The drink today in my hotel room in Tokyo is instant green tea. That's because I'm sick. I've got a cold that's been stalking me since I flew out here last week. I'm here in Japan for a film project, but we will have a pretty sweet podcast episode from Tokyo coming down the road. Meanwhile, I've been thinking a lot about Issei and Nisei and Sansei, the first generation of immigrants from Japan to the U.S. and their kids and grandkids. That migration story is a big part of my family's life since my kids are, for their part, members of the fourth generation of Japanese Americans. Migration and mixing, man, it is what makes America great. For this episode, Nikki Nakazawa and I actually spoke a while back in Oaxaca, Mexico, where she lives. Her dad is Japanese-American, which certainly doesn't define her, but is relevant because I think she's exhibit A of the upside of what she calls the dislocation of being the kid and great-grandchild of immigrants. It's part of what allowed her to dive into Mexico, make it her home, and get to the point she's at now, building a mezcal company that works for the small producers as well as it works for you, the mezcal-crazy consumers. I'm Nathan Thornburg, at least for as long as this cold doesn't kill me, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. What brought you to uh, Mexico City to begin with? So when I was a student at University of Chicago, there was a study abroad program in Oaxaca. So I came down to Oaxaca in 2005 and uh, was here for about three, four months and kind of totally fell in love with, with Oaxaca and with Mexico in general. And from then it became this minor obsession that ran through the rest of my course choices. <laughs> and so I was able to study with some really great uh, professors of Mexican history and university, and then decided to move here right after college. And then um, I had one of my dad's ex-students who was working at the Tamayo, the Contemporary Art Museum of okay. Mexico City, um, help me get an internship at Turner and A&R Books, which was the publishing house that actually had published a lot of the books that I used for my thesis. And so I got a little gig there okay. and very quickly became uh, an assistant editor. But as a result of like many weird and unfortunate things that happened to the publishing house. That checks out with the, uh, with the timeline. You ended up being an editor at, and was it all art books? Or? It was all art. Uh -huh. It was all contemporary art. And then the publishing house went under. Okay. And then I moved to another publishing house, which was uh, Arquine. Mm -hmm. And I was managing editor, working with art, architecture, and design. Something took you from the art publishing world to the point where you started working in food and you started running a, uh, a company in Mexico City around that. What was that? How did that get going? Well, after the publishing gig, I was working at this contemporary art gallery in uh, Mexico City. And... Um, we were a small team, so I was doing a little bit of everything, which was great. There was a lot of things that I loved about it and was traveling quite a bit. But I just found 
this disconnect between this type of powerful work and the work that the artist was doing and then uh, trying to figure out how I was going to be in this world professionally mm -hmm. when I found that to be successful at it, I would also have to really rub uh, elbows or shoulders or whatever the phrase is with the very wealthy mm -hmm. of uh, Mexico. And it just didn't sit well with me. You were interested in powerful work, not powerful people. people. Yeah. I decided, okay, what's my passport into another reality? And food seemed a really good one. Oh, I was going to uh, say drugs are great. Uh, <laughs> But, but, Going into the underworld? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, but definitely food, too. Um, food, too. <laughs> it's great. So, uh, you know, especially right. living in a country like Mexico, which continues to be an agrarian country. Yeah, right. Let's work with food. Let's work with farmers. I have this wonderful friend, uh, Emma Rosenbush. She was traveling through Latin America. She made a stop in Mexico City. We reconnected after many years. We were just walking through downtown Mexico City and had this idea we're like you know always really wanted to maybe open a restaurant or and she had worked on all these farmers markets uh -huh. in uh, California and she was uh, doing a lot of prison advocacy work okay and we're like how can we link all these things together and yeah. from that conversation emerged this project called Pichon okay which was this farm to table pop-up like the most millennial thing you can imagine, like Sounds in like Mexico City. Hits all the notes. Yeah. And we we're like, yeah, great. Let's do this thing. I was still at the gallery and we, another friend, a mutual friend of ours had just started this project called Yolkan, which was a sustainable farming project on the chinampas of Xochimilco. So the chinampas are uh, these floating gardens but really they're agricultural islands mm. that were built during the time of Nezahualcoyotl. So this is in the 1400s. Okay. Um, and it was the first intensive irrigation system of the Western Hemisphere. Xochimilco is inside Xochimilco Mexico City? Xochimilco is the southernmost delegation of Mexico City. Got it. Okay. And it has this now, like, you know, 200 kilometers of navigable canals. Okay. So we're like, yeah, but you know, no one else can do farm to table like this. Because we're going to be using these living ruins. Yeah. That sounds like very difficult to pull off. Just like you're hitting a lot of like narrow targets with how you're going to accomplish what you were trying to do. Um, yeah. Was it? Actually, it wasn't. It was, I think that we really didn't know what we were doing. You know, the name of the project is Pichon, which in Mexican slang, Spanish means novice. Okay. So we were a bunch of pichones. We like had no idea. I mean, we had not no background really in food. Yeah. I mean, I had worked at some restaurants, but like right, right. every college student I think has. And you know, she had kind of worked at some farmers markets, and we were like, duh, like this is gonna work, and it did, awesome. which was crazy. But I think it was also just a really special time in Mexico City because Yolkan was just getting. Um, its start, and then also uh, the Mercado del Cien, which is the uh, 100 market. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, the first organic local market of Mexico City. So we had a lot of resources. Our first pop-up was in this fonda, which is, you know, a communal kitchen space yeah. in our neighborhood in Roma. And they rented us their kitchen space yeah. on a Sunday for 300 pesos. Wow. It's like $10. And we 
had like bought like you know 300 eggs or something you know right <laughs> and uh so we did this kind of american brunch our first uh pop-up using products using, from the aztec floating yes gardens and from other local producers got it so that was our first event and at that first event uh one of my dear friends he had just opened up this restaurant called Cafe Sena. It was this one long communal table uh-huh. uh, in San Miguel Chapultepec. And I was like, you guys should just use the space huh. on Sundays. And so that was our second location. And we started using that location initially once a month and mm-hmm. then every week for about a year. And So it became a pop-up within a, an established restaurant. Exactly. So you were ideating this you had the reckless enthusiasm that got it off the ground were you also now cooking was this part of where you were more front of the house does the pop-up have a front of the house i was um, initially kind of coordinating all the things kenny was cooking emma and i were like administrating uh, doing front of house doing Mm -hmm. a little bit of everything and then eventually i i was also cooking I mean, did it feel at that point that that was for you, could you tell this was sort of changing your trajectory and you were going to be off in this direction from then on? I don't really remember. Yeah. All I know is that uh, I think it must have been about two months into the pop-up, I quit my job and we managed to make it work. I mean, that's also part of the attraction of living in Mexico too. It just seems like there's more freedom. I mean, frankly, mm-hmm. life is just a bit cheaper. You can have a crazy idea and try to execute it, and if it doesn't work, then, you know, you're still kind of making your way around. It feels like part of the the Mexican dream. For sure. I mean, I think that it obviously depends on what class you're coming from. But yeah. in my case, certainly uh, the freedom um, and the ability to make things work with not a whole lot of money. Yeah. Um, and maybe not a lot of money, but a lot of social capital. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can make those friendships and those you know relationships really work for you. And and again, like this is really a story of a lot of things aligning, a lot of people's projects aligning. Yeah, you know, it was a lot of serendipity. And also, I think that everybody's kind of a hustler in Mexico City or in Mexico in general. Everybody wears multiple hats, and yeah. I think it's just a more human way of looking at people and their full complexity rather than you know understanding each individual as a specialist in this tiny little thing yeah since we're talking about that i wanted to talk about your background a little bit too your background's connected to what brought you to latin america in the first place your mother's actually was born in uruguay is that right yes and your father is many, many generations japanese american yeah so what was it about like the way that they raised you that made you the kind of person who's just going to go and be in Mexico for what seems like an eternity, (laughs) or at least a decade and change. Yeah. My family is a product of a lot of displacement, both voluntary and involuntary. So we're quite small as a group. And so there isn't, I don't have this like big weight of place, Yeah, which then becomes, you know, a search for place. Right. So on the one hand, um, you know, not having been particularly rooted in any location has freed me up to find another home. Um, and I think that both my parents really understand that. Uh, and at 16, my mom was like, you know, you should go learn Spanish and 
she really encouraged me. So um, you didn't grow up speaking in the home. I did not. Huh. Um, yeah, there was various factors. Yeah. I was raised in a home with my paternal grandmother, mm. and I think my mom didn't want to isolate her. Yeah. And, you know, for whatever reasons that she had, uh, she didn't teach us Spanish yeah. in the home, although we were around it. Yeah. I was stubbornly was like, okay, you know, if I'm going to be different, yeah. especially within the context of, you know, like a white American suburb, yeah. then might as well... This is up in Boston area? Yeah, in the Boston yeah. area. I might as well, you know, substantiate it with something yeah. so that something that's going to be me speaking Spanish. There's a great little punk band in Mexico City called Sierra Madre. Half of them are Japanese Mexicans. Know. And I was talking to them about being Japanese in Mexico City and, you know, they've been there for generations. I guess it's some echo of the larger populations that you see in Peru or Brazil, you know, it's kind of around that time. And they were like, yeah, I don't care if they call us chinos. Like, it's just what they do. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. fine. It's just part of the language or something. I mean, obviously, your last name is Japanese. How do people kind of respond to it here in you know, Mexico? I felt such a huge relief coming mm -hmm. to Mexico and being called like a Chino because it was like, oh, I get to be a generic, <laughs> like, foreigner or a generic outsider um, yeah. rather than a specific one. Right. It just felt like such an oppressive discussion to be having constantly in the states about like okay yeah but so you know being Uruguayan means this or you know right. being Japanese means this like you don't know me and, yeah. and also like each culture and each it's all so different like you don't know what part of Uruguay and the background of my grandparents and their parents and then mm -hmm. you know the the different parts of Japan that my ancestors came from and right. the circumstances under which they came migrated to the States is different than someone else's. And mm -hmm. so just to feel kind of like people projecting this like opaque vision of what your identity is supposed to be in the States and then coming here and it just being like, oh, whatever, you know. And it's not a conversation that traps you. Oh, it doesn't. It, it's Because you're just like, right, sure, Chino, like, yeah, whatever, it, I'm moving on with my day. Exactly. Um, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but it's true. Like identity gets so, it's so political. And it's not that I'm not interested in, yeah. in those conversations. I just think they're, you know, they're very personal. Yeah. To engage with a stranger on that level, mm -hmm. it feels really invasive. And here, right, it's just a completely different mentality, yeah. as you can tell. And I get to pass in a certain way. Mm -hmm. like I get to kind of vague Latin American, whatever, we don't know. But, like, I kind of get to just fly under the radar a bit, yeah. which um, has given me space to explore other things. Yeah. Do you feel like you are understood less as an American because of your passing? And is that good, bad? I feel like in Mexico City, I was passing quite a bit as it's just, you know, I've been in Mexico City for so long now yeah. that like people are like, oh, you get it. So I don't know whether that's me passing <laughs> right. as Mexican or just right. people understanding, okay, she's an American who's been here for a long time. So now yeah. she understands certain things. We don't have to do the whole thing anymore. I think that in Oaxaca, something that's maybe been slightly uh, exacerbating is this, how people present themselves, you know, oh yes, we're here in Oaxaca, the land of great traditions and the moles right. and the music <laughs> and the folkloric dance and right. don't you love our crafts? You know, I'm like, yes, 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 yeah. I've 
been through this? Right. Can we get to the next <laughs> the next level now where you're not telling me about the mole? Right. But, you know. That's interesting, right? Because it is, it is true about Oaxaca, but Oaxaca is also a much more interesting place than just that, you know. Of um, course it is. How did you end up coming down here? And what are you, what are you doing here? I made the decision to move to Oaxaca because I have a mezcal company, which is now really an aguardiente de agave company because we've decided not to pursue the denomination of origin. But because you will get taxed. Um, it's not about taxation. It's about the different steps we have to take to get the certification yeah, and it's quite expensive and labor intensive and it is prohibitive for some of our producers. So we decided to take this other route. Are you producers pissed? I mean, I mean, they've been making mezcal for presumably <sighs> generations. I've heard echoes of this where it's just like, we're now being, whether it's charged or made to jump through hoops in order to make or represent that you make the thing you've been making for forever? Sure. I mean, I think that within the communities themselves, it's not like anybody's going to tell them they can't call what they make mezcal. Right. It's more of um, a commercial strategy, which mm-hmm. they understand. Yeah. When, when you look at all the, the taxation and, you know, the alcohol taxes in Mexico are about 53%. So when you then add on all of the additional fees for the Comarcam, which yeah. is the um, institute that oversees the denomination, it becomes very expensive. They oversee mezcal they oversee specifically. They oversee mezcal. So you can make the same stuff, but just by calling it aguardiente de agave. And nothing changes. The right. liquid is exactly the same. Yeah. It's literally just the ability to market it as mezcal mm-hmm. and put the word mezcal on the bottle. Right. But you are not looking to sell to Sam's Club anyway. No, certainly not. And I would hope, um, and part of the the work that we've been doing along with many, many other people yeah. is making it so that the consumer understands, okay, yes, it says aguardiente de agave on the bottle, but I know that this is mezcal. Mm-hmm. Um, and making it so that people are educated enough to to understand that and understand the product yeah. and the quality of the product as it stands on its own. You started this mezcal company with uh, a few partners from Mexico City. No, um, so my business partner is this guy Max Rosenstock. He mm-hmm. is from uh, New Mexico. Okay, and had been living in Oakland for I want to say maybe the past ten years. Yeah. And he started coming down to Oaxaca around 2010, 2011, I believe, yeah. and just got into it. And he uh, was riding around in his car and asking around for mezcal and had the great fortune of encountering some of the producers that we're currently working with hmm. in the Sierra Sur of Oaxaca. Um, so this is right by Miwatlan along the um, southern mountain range. So he just hit gold because really this is now after having tried many mezcals all over Oaxaca, this is really, I can say, my favorite region Hmm. for mezcal. He just started bringing all this mezcal by the house because he was friends with uh, my ex-boyfriend. As I was producing all these food events, he would 
be coming through California, making a stop in Mexico City on his way towards Oaxaca, and back and forth, staying with us, leaving Mezcal, eventually uh, started asking me whether I would help him produce some events yeah. where he could sell some Mezcal and help fund some of these research trips. Mm-hmm. And so I happily obliged, and we started throwing these little speakeasy parties. Uh, in Mexico City. In Mexico City. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about now the American, the growing American thirst for Mex- Mezcal, but Mexico City was really where the market began, right? In terms of like, they were the ones who first were able to create this demand. And it's like a very Mezcal loving town, right? Yeah, I mean, although surprisingly, people still know almost nothing about Mezcal, even in Mexico City. Really? But I guess. There was um, some, the creation of some of the first mezcalerias mm-hmm. uh, with a little bit more of a serious uh, mezcal list in yeah. um, Mexico City. And and the formation of some of these real, well, the most important mezcal club in Mexico City, which is the Logia de Mezcolatras. So this That's guy... A very fancy name. Yeah. So it's this kind of like secret, not super secret, but yeah. kind of club of mezcal lovers. And uh-huh. there's, you know, some rules and guidelines. And what, how would you translate that? The Mezcal lovers mafia or like... <laughs> there it is. Okay. Or legion, the legion of mezcal oh, like lovers. That. They were sort of setting the tastes, forming the kind of ideas of how you taste mezcal and yes. like how you compare them. and. Yeah, and they were generating a lot of the the concepts and the vocabulary that uh-huh. that people in traditional mezcal are using, and they were creating a lot of the framework for the the battle yeah. rounds of yeah. mezcal and the and the discussions around the denomination of origin. And how long ago was this? This was around two thousand five, two thousand six. Okay, yeah. Um, and then you know, really, the boom started in two thousand eight. And that's even in Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. Although there was obviously things happening before then, but in terms of the yeah. the mezcalería yeah. as the space of learning right. about mezcal, mm-hmm. that was around that time. You started doing pop-ups in Mexico City, and obviously this is something of a tide that can carry a lot of ships. I don't think anybody would say it's crazy to invest your time in trying to figure out how to do this and do it well, because... Clearly, you know, this market's here for a while. How did you go from that to, like, deciding, all right, you're going to start to create a brand with this guy? I think, actually, it was for a very practical reason. He Uh actually needed another partner in his sociedad in the formation of the company. And he asked me. And I was like, yeah, that's that's great. I would love to have a mezcal brand. (laughs) Without really knowing what it would imply and how long it would take to get to the point where we might be able to sell anything yeah. legally. Yeah. So that was in 2014, 2015. Yeah. So we formed the company in 2015 and kind of slowly worked through some marketing stuff, some legal stuff, and now now we're going through the licensing part. Yeah. But, you know, basically nothing had happened on the licensing front for years and yeah. that's why I'm here. Because in Oaxaca, yeah, because it's very difficult to work alone, and mm. Max was here alone, yeah, um, sorting out a lot of things and also moving, shuttling between California and Oaxaca. And he also, this past year, decided to move to Oaxaca. Got it. Um, so it was like, okay, you're making the commitment to move to Oaxaca, then I'll move to Oaxaca, and then let's get this done, yeah. 
because it wasn't going to happen any other way. Um, now, so to play devil's advocate, to be, you know, kind of a, a couple Americans setting up a mezcal brand seems like it might be the pointy end of the spear. I mean, there's this huge, you know, boom that's causing pressure in unexpected and odd ways for producers and probably for the local economy. How do you how do you go about doing it the right way or what do you see as some of the things that that need to be done to make it like a good kind of business and not a gold rush kind of business? Well, honestly, I think that mezcal, it's going to be difficult to make it a gold rush type of situation unless hmm. you're like, you're coming at it with a huge amount of money. But even then, it's a difficult situation with the producers because this, you know, this is something that's attached to a way of life, a subsistence farming way of life. So um, it's not like you have producers with hectares and hectares and hectares of agave that's just ready ready for harvest and that you can just process and get done with. The lifespan of the plants themselves is quite long. So if we're talking about even espadín, which is a cultivated varietal, we're talking a minimum of three four or five years mm-hmm. for the plant to be ready for harvest. These are not grapes. Yeah, it's not grapes. It goes up to like 30 years, right? For uh, some uh-huh. of them. Up to 30 years. Yeah. There's a lot of patience involved. And within the context of the commercialization of mezcal, there's always been the figure of the intermediary. So I don't feel like we're doing something that the product itself doesn't demand. So... Like any other product that's coming from uh, an agricultural community, like whether it's milk or corn or chiles or calabaza, whatever, if it's not consumed within the community itself or traded, there's always been this figure of the intermediary who brings it to market. Mm -hmm. And so historically in Oaxaca, that figure has been uh, the expendio. So these people who buy mezcal in bulk and then they have their little storefronts in Oaxaca where they resell. Yeah. Are these the guys who were making like mezcal cream? Uh, yes. <laughs> oh no. But before then it wasn't mezcal cream. It was, you know, there was actually mezcal being sold. I have a lot of questions about cream of oh, mezcal. I don't, you know, I don't even know how they make it. I just, uh, I feel like there's like a lot of uh, hydrogenized oil or something. Oh, it's, 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 it's an amazing thing. It's like somebody's like taking this incredible, uh, uh, this incredible spirit mezcal and, and tried to make some fucking Baileys out of it. Yeah, and really, they just sell it everywhere in Oaxaca City. It's truly gross. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah. So you know how I see it um, as a trying to be a responsible brand. Yeah. Is actually trying to present ourselves not as a brand. So I don't. I'm not looking for like brand recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, in this, in the way that you know, people drink Padron or right. Hennessy. Yeah. It's like you understand, okay, like Neta, which is the name of our brand, yeah. or Mezcaloteca, or Quiche, or uh, Archivo Magui. These are the guardians of these projects or these agaves or these producers. Yeah. So we're quote unquote curating, which mm-hmm. sounds maybe a little pretentious, but we're merchants. We're selling what we consider the best. Yeah, Shit. right. You're a storefront, whether or not you actually have a physical location. That's exactly. That's the basic idea. That's the basic idea. So like we run a wine shop. Here's the best wines you can exactly. get. Exactly. Uh huh. And that's how mezcal, I think, functions. What my goal is, and what I'd love, is for people to understand 
have brand recognition to the level of, okay, these are the good brands. These are the good projects. So maybe I know nothing about Mezcal, but I'm going to buy from Neta because I know that they uh, take care of the product and that they're choosing really excellent Mezcals and, you know, they're working ethically. You know, you're talking about doing it responsibly. There are companies with a huge amount of money who are coming in and they're buying all the product they can kind of get their hands on and who knows, maybe Mm -hmm. they're cutting it with some weird shit or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's nothing that people won't do to meet an American demand. So that's out there. But you guys, you know, you had mentioned a few of these, uh, a few of these players in, in, in Oaxaca who are kind of, I don't know, artisanal sounds little goofy, but mm-hmm. essentially just trying to protect a certain way of making and selling mezcal. That's a pretty strong community here, right? There's like a yeah. mission behind it. Absolutely. And this is actually something that's been in the works. A few of these players in Oaxaca is really creating standards. So all of us collectively sticking to mm-hmm. certain types of standards of production and ethics and sustainability. So there are a few different players, and again, I think that this all started to come together about like 2005, 2006, 2007, yeah. 2010, um, all these mezcal projects emerging, all in defense of traditional mezcal and all in the interest of uh, the consumer being able to walk into a bar and say, you know, I want this varietal of maguey rather than I want this brand right. of mezcal. For you, what is the most important thing in ethics? Like, what's what's the thing that big guys or the kind of multinationals are getting wrong about the ethics of mezcal? I think that um, a mistake is to forget that really mezcal is tied into this uh, way of life. So it's not a product in the traditional sense. It's something that's tied to the land mm-hmm. um, and is tied to certain life cycles. Yeah. So again, like a lot of these farmers aren't making mezcal year round as their main source of income. It's not like a mono crop. They produce as much mezcal as their land will allow. We are the beneficiaries of this way of life. And so it's difficult in terms of the pressure around agave. There are people who are selling shit tons of agave from Oaxaca to Jalisco for the production of tequila. Right. Um, Which is just like yeah. not where Oaxaca yeah, agave should go. <laughs> no, it's not. But, yeah. uh, but you know, again, there's going to be your farmer in need mm-hmm. who will make a decision to sell whatever agave they have to the highest bidder right and the producers or the um, commercializers from um jalisco certainly have a lot more money on hand yeah than people yeah. in mezcal right yeah that's interesting so it's uh it's the tequila traffickers who <laughs> yeah. are the biggest concern for like the super simplified breakdown version tequila and mezcal are made from the same I don't know, is it species, genus uh, of plant? Yeah, uh, so they're they're both made um, from agave. Yeah. Tequila is blue agave. And then mezcal is made out of about 14 different species of agave and subvarietals. Yeah. The thing that is sort of sends a cold shudder through the spine of everybody who cares about mezcal is that tequila had turned blue agave into this kind of like the ultimate monocrop. There's no place in that industry for the kind of artisanal or kind of 
varietal intelligence that that mm-hmm. is part of mezcal. Yeah, and Jalisco really was a state with you know some of the most wonderful varietals mm-hmm. of agave, and now you know it's obviously become quite limited. So where do you see Neta like in five years? Well, I'd like to see a different type of commercialization around mezcal. I think it's really important for people under, to understand the diversity of mezcal. But at the same time, I think this idea that a mezcaleria in another country or outside of Oaxaca or outside of Mexico should include like 160 varietals is maybe a little absurd. So you want to rein in the kind of well, like precociousness the, of... You know, the kind of like mania around yeah. like having all the things, but right. understanding that maybe what's more valuable and valuable for the culture of mezcal is to build a relationship with a producer mm-hmm. or a project that can actually um, reinvest some of that money in a meaningful way. So if you buy a whole lot of the mezcal that you really love yeah, um, and you do that every year or right. twice a year, then you build your own collection of mezcal. Let me have a relationship with this producer in the Sierra Sur, this other producer in Michoacan. I'm going to buy one lot here, one lot there. uh, And then I'm going to save, you know, six bottles of each lot. And then every year, maybe in 10 years, I'm going to have a really wonderful collection. We have to obviously respond to the market and survive as a business. But but also really encourage people to take more of an interest in, in a particular producer or um, a particular region. Where can people find Neta Mezcals in the States? You can't find them yet because, as I said, you're still working on the licensing. I'm still working on the licensing. But hopefully soon um, in California, which is where we have our uh, American company. And um, that's our main market again. Like, we can't uh, service the entire world, but right. we choose a place where we also belong and have community. Yeah. yeah. And that's a place where Max has uh, been established for a long time. And so. Okay. Well, this will be a race then. Your licensing versus our publishing. Maybe we'll get there around the same time uh, so. when we publish this episode. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to yeah. talk to me. It's a fascinating moment for this business, and uh, it's cool to see you here doing it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nikki. The Trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg, produced by Josie Holtzman and Danielle Roth of Future Projects. Our editor is Roads and Kingdoms' Taffy Mukunyadze. Our executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Special thanks to Dan the Automator for the music and to Adele Rodriguez for the art. Next Monday, The Trip continues its improbable bounce around the world. We'll be in Europe, talking with talented writer and editor Alexa Van Sickle about how to drink your way through her native country of Austria. We'll meet you there. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.